Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy L. Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show. We've got a great show lined up for you today. I am grateful, as always, and humbled that so many people are listening to the show, both live and in the archives, and also in the iTunes podcast channel. I created the show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers in the chat. The live chat is open now, so you know, type in and say hello. Email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or if you'd like to have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at Tracy at TracyLSlatten.com, and Tracy is T-R-A-C-I, and it's Slatten with an S. I know sometimes over a phone line or on the radio it can sound like Slatten with an F, but it's Slatten with S like Sam. In the coming weeks, some fascinating guests are coming on. Next week on Thursday, November 5th at 3 p.m., which is a special time for independent artists and thinkers, the Honorable Vice Consul of Italy, Steve Acunto, will be on talking about how to be a patron of the high arts. Um, And I think that's really interesting because we live in a world besieged by low art. He will also talk about cultural diplomacy. Very cool. On Thursday, November 12th at 1 p.m., our regular time, the English psychic Paula Roberts will be on talking about unleaking Unlocking the Secrets of Your Handwriting and Mediumship and Ghost Hunting. That'll be fun. On Thursday, November 19, Dr. Linda Hillebrand will be on to discuss her journey as a physician of integrative medicine, and she's also an athlete. Very cool. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am so happy today to have pianist David Sklar on. 
And a personal note before I read David's bio, he's a gifted composer and he wrote the song from which I took the intro and outro music to this show. So I'm really happy to have him on. He's a friend and a wonderful musician and teacher, and it's just really an honor and a joy to have him here. David Sklar has been composing and performing music regularly since the age of seven. At age 11, he gained acceptance to the prestigious preparatory program at the Manhattan School of Music, where he studied performance with master professor David uh, Philip Cohen. Cohen. Kaywin. David has also taken classes with concert pianist Andre Watts. During this period, he also studied with Jacques Dupré, musical director of the Stony Brook University Music Department, and with concert pianist Marina Grin at the National Music Academy at Interlochen, Michigan. During the summers, David attended and performed at a chamber music camp in Middlebury, Vermont. Upon graduation from Manhattan School of Music, David gained acceptance at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. While majoring in film scoring at Berklee, he studied performance with Livingston Taylor, brother of James Taylor, as well as film scoring. Early in his career, he performed within his local community on Long Island, playing at civic auditoriums, libraries, and benefits. David is also a singer and a songwriter and keyboardist with over two albums of all original material. His music has been presented, and he has been interviewed on various radio programs all across the United States, as well as having performed vocally at Lincoln Center in a musical tribute to the late Jim Henson. From 1990 to 1992, for three consecutive years, David received perfect scores in both voice and piano at NYSSMA, do we have a, do, NISMA, and also has original work scored for piano and orchestra. Committed to further developing his career, after graduation from Berkeley, David pursued his career in Los Angeles, California. While in Los Angeles, his professional accomplishments included artistic support under the direction of Graham Prescott for major motion picture films at Hans Zimmer's Media Ventures. At that time, he also worked under the musical supervision of Ray Bunch, who was scoring a television show on NBC and was also working for Sony Picture Studios in Culver City, California. After moving to Arizona, David was hard at work composing and performing at clubs in the Phoenix area, as well as owning and operating his own piano teaching studio. David currently resides in New York City, and he has completed recording two new CDs entitled Dream Chaser and The Troubadour, featuring all original music. David is also busy gigging at various clubs and cabarets in New York City. Some of David's music may be heard at www.davidsklarmusic.com, and that's David Sklar, S-K-L-A-R, music.com. He has an extremely wide range of influences from Brahms, Rachmaninoff, Chopin, Debussy to Elton John, Billy Joel, Queen, The Doors, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Journey, The Eagles, The Beatles, and many more artists and genres. David may be reached at sfvg757 at aol.com. David, welcome, and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm going to start with a question I like to put first to my guests, and I'll have you take the microphone for this, and that is, tell us how you got started. How did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be a musician? Was music a major presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? Like, did you have a secret dream to be an astronaut or fireman? So tell me about your childhood and lead up till now. And I know it's a big question, so you can take it and run with it. Okay. Well, my musical journey started when I was about three years old. And uh, we had this 
little toy keyboard organ and uh we had i remember my first record i ever listened to was actually it was the beatles sung by the chipmunks <laughs> and um i was just listening to it over and over again and at 3 years old i was able to just pick up a lot of the songs on the record and just started playing them and my mom and dad were sitting downstairs we were living we had a house out on long island in suffolk county and uh they heard all of a sudden music coming from upstairs and so they ran up the stairs to see who was playing it and there i was sitting on the keyboard just playing the songs off of the record just all beatles songs sung by the chipmunks <laughs> <laughs> so um at that time you know 3 years old i was still a little bit young for lessons but i was always playing the keyboard always and um when i was about 5 years old i would say 5 or 6 years old they uh wanted to put me in piano lessons so i entered piano lessons at 5 or 6 and uh was studying with the teacher out there and i would have to say that I started developing a wide interest in music at that time, just listening to the radio and watching the television, watching the artists on TV. And I would say at five or six was probably the beginning of it, although I can't say I loved to practice at that age, but I did love music. And um, seven or eight years old, it continued probably through 10 or 11 years old, 12 years old, um, with this teacher and was performing in various recitals out in Long Island. And um, at that time, my sister knew of a master professor who was teaching in Manhattan School of Music. Uh, his name was Philip Kaywin. And she said, let me introduce you to him and see maybe if he could take you on because we wanted to kind of, you know, bring you to that next level, develop your skills and so I met with him, and um, at that time, you know, my reading and my technique and everything was, you know, it needed to be developed. So he agreed to work with me. Um, we would have to travel into Manhattan at that time every Saturday, study in his place, and the goal was to bring me to a certain point where I could audition to get into Manhattan School of Music. He was also teaching there. In Manhattan School of Music was a number of other classes. I was studying composition, ear training, performance, conducting. Um, so I studied with him probably for about a year or two privately. And then I went and auditioned for Manhattan School of Music, and I got in. And I continued studying with him all the way through high school. And um, at that time, I would say probably around 12 years old, I was getting into composition, performing, composing my own pieces. Uh, and I love classical music. Probably, I would say, especially Chopin, Brahms, and Rachmaninoff. And Why those three? There's just something about their music that resonates with me. They're just their, their whole, the, the harmonic structure, the rhythmic structure, the melodic structure in their music, just the overall feel. There's just something, especially the Rachmaninoff Concerto Number no. 2, uh, and the Brahms Concerto Number no. 2, which in my opinion are among the greatest concertos ever written. Um, and, uh, of course, 
Chopin, who just has a number of amazing piano pieces, uh, you know, uh, primarily. I mean, he's also got orchestral as well, but his piano pieces, his preludes, his etudes, his polonaises, his nocturnes, just the most amazing, beautiful music. Um, and it was just something that resonated with me about those composers. Um, of course, I love Tchaikovsky as well and a number of other composers. Um, but I've always loved classical music, and I've also always loved popular music. And when I was young, I think my overall dream was to be a concert pianist. So I took a, a master class with Andre Watts. Actually, the first time I saw Andre Watts, I was out studying in Interlock in Michigan uh, with Marina Grin, and Andre came and performed a concert there. And it was just something, it was kind of like just love at first sight, you know, just watching him perform, watching his movements and how his, his confidence walking on stage, he was just, he was like a classical rock star in a sense, you know, and I was just, I could, I, he, he just had me mesmerized and I just watched him on interviews and it's just right then I knew that probably he was one of my favorites. And, um, and what was nice is that I saw him a couple of years ago in concert and I got to sneak backstage and talk to him. And uh, this was a few years ago, probably more like seven or eight years ago, actually. But it was interesting because we were speaking, and I remember the first thing that I said, I, I would guess I was a little nervous. I said, oh, it's so great to meet you. I said, you're one of my biggest fans. <laughs> and then I thought about it, and he looked at me with this kind of weird look on his face, like trying to place, who, who are you? <laughs> and then I thought about it. I said, I mean, I'm one of your biggest fans. So it was just a little awkward moment. It was, it was, it was funny. We all have those kinds of moments. <laughs> so that was my first initial meeting with him. Um, but uh, it was great. And uh, and then I uh, probably I, I wrote my first official piano piece. And I didn't know what to call it. It just had some... How old were you? I was at the time about 12 or 13. And it was a very virtuosic piece. It was just the notes were everywhere. My fingers were flying. But there were a lot of different sections of the piece. It didn't really have a specific structure or form. So I was studying composition with Chris Faciliades out in uh, Manhattan School of Music. And uh, he was an excellent teacher. And uh, I played it for him. And he said, wow, it, there's just so many sections. And, and it had a Spanish influence. So he said, why don't you call it Spanish Rhapsody? Like a Rhapsody, you know, just has so many different sections. So I said, that's a great title. So it ended up becoming Spanish Rhapsody, and I ended up performing that piece a lot. And, and it became, um, you know, very uh, addicting. I wrote one piece, and then I wrote another piece, and then I wrote another piece. I started writing chamber music. I started writing music for orchestras, and I was studying scores, Mozart's Magic Flute. And I was just studying all of the orchestrations. And uh, I would write music on the train. And that's one way I developed my ears was I would write music that was in my head, and I would later go home to the, and play them on the piano and see, does that sound like what I was hearing in my head? So now I can write a whole symphony in my head. I don't, have to, I don't even need a piano. Actually, I don't write much with the piano these days. I prefer the idea for the song or the piece to be in my head first. That's usually where the idea comes from because I can hear the full arrangement in silence. And then I later transfer it to a piano. And do you think that's the technique with Mozart, right, when he was deaf? That he no, no, Beethoven. Beethoven, right. Well, Beethoven later on, yeah, he didn't really have much of a choice. He actually wasn't born deaf. It developed later in life. But um, 
he wasn't really fully deaf. They say that, you know, if he was in a standing in a big, crowded, loud city with sirens and horns and car alarms, at the time, probably they didn't have that. But, you know, an example, he would hear maybe just a little tiny little ringing in his ear, but not enough to be able to hear what he was playing. But did he use the same, did Beethoven use your same technique of listening to it in his head, do you think? Well, I've heard different ideas about how Beethoven, some people said he used to compose barefoot and feel the vibrations on his feet from the piano. I don't know specifically how, uh, which technique he used, but I'm just about certain that probably at that point he had all of the sounds internalized, all of the keys, all of the pitches. So he could write a whole symphony in his head and he really didn't need to hear it. He had everything already. He knew what it would sound like. So I use a lot of those techniques as well. Um, so I was... Do you write barefoot? I don't write barefoot, no. <laughs> no, I don't write Although sometimes I may be in my socks, but I, I can't say that I, uh, I rely on vibrations from the floor. But um, some pieces I do write on, on the piano, other pieces I prefer just to think it first and let the idea, uh, it, it's born in my mind, and then transfer it over without the distraction of the noise of the piano. Um, do you ever worry you'll lose parts of it? And the reason I ask is because, like, I'm 50,000 words, or 60, I'm actually like 65,000 words into a 90,000 word novel, and I think things I'll be... I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about something, and I do get up to write it down because I'm afraid I'll lose it. I write everything down. Okay. Everything I write down. If I have even one idea or a melody, if I'm walking around a supermarket or on a street or in a park, and I notice that I'm humming a melody that obviously I don't recognize, it's just a melody that it came from wherever it came from, and I just notice, and and then two days later I'm humming the same melody. Everything I write down, and that's just the traditionalist in me from classical training. Everything on paper, um, in this way I don't forget it. There are some songs where I hear them in dreams, and uh, I wake up and, of course, immediately I write them down. And actually what's interesting is Universal Love. When I wrote that song, and I... Tell them what Universal Love is. Universal Love was actually the song that I had written for the theme song for your book, which was The Love of My Life, The Love of My Other Life, and um, that was a theme song for that, and um, and, and um, Universal Love is a song from which I took the intro and outro for this show. Yeah, and the story is amazing, and immediately it connected with me on a lot of different levels, and um, so with that particular song, I did write Sitting at the Piano. And after I had written it, when I write my music, I'm sort of like a channel. And I don't remember writing any of my music. It just comes out of me. And what's interesting is that a lot of the times the subject matter are premonitions. They're not things I experienced yet. And so what's inter- they just come out of me. You know, if I'm singing a song, you know, uh, for instance, Take You By The Hand. I want to take you by the hand or a song about the Spanish Civil War, which I had written, which is called Pandemonia which is a, uh, it's Pandemonium and Catalonia. It's about the Spanish Civil War with the rule of uh, Francisco Franco. And what's interesting is people say, what inspired you to write that? And it's kind of interesting because when the song just comes out of you, out of some divine inspiration, you have to kind of, you know, think, hmm, how did that come out of me? I don't really remember writing it. But a lot of these things I experienced later. 
for instance, when I was writing Take You by the Hand at that time, I really hadn't experienced any kind of real loss, you know, at the time. I hadn't lost my dad, who passed away in 2000. My grandfather had just died, I believe, and I remember feeling his energy floating at the ceiling. It was just a strong presence that I felt. And the song just came out of me. And, of course, years later, I've experienced more of that. But it doesn't have to be about loss of someone dying. It could be a loss of a relationship. But um, the song is much more meaning for me now. And a lot of my music just sort of, you know, they were premonitions of things that I had experienced later in life. And I couldn't figure out, why did I write this about this subject topic? Where did that come from? I just channeled it. And then I experienced it years later. And I said, wow, that's why I wrote it. Can you just tell listeners where they can listen to Catalonia and Take You by the Hand? Yeah, Pandemonia and Take You by the Hand could be found on my website at davidsklarmusic.com. And I'm also on YouTube. If they just go onto YouTube and type in David Sklar Pandemonia or Take You by the Hand, they will be able to find the video. I made a bunch of, of videos for my music, um, and um, they could find it there as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I kind of channel my music when I write and that's how I wrote universal love. And I swear that I think that's one of the songs that I heard in a dream years ago, but when I woke up, I couldn't remember it. And it was bugging me because I remember in the dream, I loved it. And I woke up and I just couldn't remember it. And it came to me in the waking state. And then I was thinking about, it, I said, I think that's the song I heard in my dream. I'm pretty sure it was. But uh, that's happened on a few occasions where I would hear it in my dream and I would write it down. I wrote a country song like that, which actually is a great song. And um, so that's kind of my process, either in a dream, sitting at a piano, or these days is thinking the idea and hearing the full arrangement in my head without all of the noise of everything around me. And I usually need to create in a, in a very quiet place. It's very difficult for me to be around noise and traffic to, to be in that creative place. Although I'm inspired by city life. Buildings and, and just city life always inspired me, the energy of it. Okay, so we've got you up till you're about in college, almost in college. So pick up again from your life story, from your journey about when you get to college and, and start from there. Okay, so up until high school, I wanted to be a professional classical concert pianist. And then I saw a video on TV. It was actually a live concert footage of an Elton John concert. And he was playing, I think it was Benny and the Jets. And he played that first chord, only the first chord, that major seventh chord. And all of a sudden, 30,000, 50,000 people went berserk. One chord. And I said... That's really what I want to do. And so at that point, I started writing. After I went to Berkeley, I, I went into Berkeley and I majored in film scoring and studied with a lot of great teachers out there. I was also studying performance with Livingston Taylor, and, uh, and uh, that was an amazing class and uh, learned a lot from him. And I started writing song after song after song after song, and I started writing lyrics. I started getting, as a lyricist, was expressing myself with, with words and poetry. And, uh, and these were the early stages of my songs, which later on I started developing, which are now fully developed songs, but some of the ideas were planted then, as well as other ideas. 
And um, I was performing in different clubs out there and different places and studying film composing. And I also loved the idea of film. And so I was thinking, you know, the idea of music and film as well as even acting. I love acting, uh, you know, and just kind of putting visual to music, I felt was so much more powerful than just listening to the song. Listening to the song is great and certainly is very powerful, but sometimes when you see a visual image put to the music, it can be very powerful. It can kind of magnify it by a hundred times. So that's when I started making my own videos. And I made my videos exactly the way I wanted to make them because I was looking, you know, I was watching MTV and VH1 and you know, they had a lot of these great videos on there by a lot of these contemporary artists. And, you know, of course, you know, a lot of it was very sexual as it is today. And I was watching them and they were very well put together, very clever videos, very fascinating. But it really wasn't moving me in the way that I wanted to be moved. You know, I said, well, you know, these are good looking artists and certainly they've got that sex appeal and it's a catchy song. But why isn't it moving me on a deep level? Why is it sort of just moving me on a very superficial level? So then I started looking at my own music and what, are, what am I writing about? What is my music about? And I noticed that my music tends to be a lot about, I use a lot of social topics, things about homeless and traveling musicians, the troubadour. I have a, a, a song, the troubadour, which is about a traveling musician who's just living his dream, playing from place to place as a free spirit, just entertaining people. Um, and then I have another dream, which is called an, uh, another song, which is called a new life which is about a homeless person who is, uh, of course, you know, a, a legit homeless person who's not on drugs or alcohol or, you know, who's just trying to make his way in the world and find work and nobody wants to hire him. And um, so it's a very moving song. Then I also have a song, Take You By The Hand. I've got the Pandemonia, which is uh, the, the Spanish Civil War, Don't Know Why, which is about you know, being in a rut in your life and just wanting to spread your wings and fly and uh, just kind of improving yourself and self-improvement and improving your life. Uh, and I know that... Um, you and I had talked before to talk about what is the message in your music. The message in my music ultimately is realizing that there's good and there's evil in the world. There's happy and there's sad. And you need all of that. Without evil, you wouldn't know what good is. Good is. It wouldn't have the same impact. Without that sadness, you wouldn't really appreciate what happiness is. So it's all necessary. You, you know, and it's just the message of bringing everything. You know, I would love to bring everybody together. You know, and as difficult as it is, whether Muslim or Hindu, or Jewish, or Christian, or all religions, all colors, everybody, just bringing everybody together and just kind of taking people outside of their minds and just elevating and realizing that all of the things that we're stressing about and we're fighting about are things that really don't exist on a certain plane. They only exist on one plane, but on a higher plane, those feelings don't exist. It's kind of like flying above the clouds, and then it's just sunny. So right now, it seems that a lot of people seem to be stuck underneath the clouds. So the message in my music is trying to bring them above the clouds, and just to get people to realize the different things in the world, and just 
bringing things to surface, you know, bringing things out. And just, uh, you know, I have another song called The Sailor Song, which is about the Navy. And I can relate to this because I have a few friends that actually were in the Navy. My dad. Yeah. And uh, so I can particularly relate to that. And it's about a um, a sailor who was in the Navy and they were going to war and he was writing a letter to his mother. And he said, you know, I don't know if I'll ever see you again. I don't know if we'll even ever touch land once more. Um, you know, greetings, mother. I'm writing this letter. It's been 10 long years since I spoke to you. Uh, I'm aboard this battleship in the Navy. And if I don't see you, just to let you know that I love you and I miss you. And it's just a sailor who's scared, but at the same time, he's brave because he's going out there and he's fighting for what he believes in, even if he's not sure if he's going to come through it. So it's about courage. And and that's kind of what I write about, real human emotions rather than, you know, a lot of the subject matter which seems to be out there now, which is, you know, a, a relationship, which I do have music about that too because that's stuff that everybody can relate to, which I, I believe is also very important to write about relationships and love. And I, I think what you're saying, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it's like, so much of pop music is stuck in one sphere. It's like there's a pie and there's 20 pieces of pie and so much of, of music, uh, modern music, is just stuck in one slice of the pie. It's a good slice, but there's 19 other slices. Yes, it's very one-dimensional. And, and I think that it's been so long at this point that I think a lot of, it's kind of had a dumbing down process. And you know, if you look at the music that came out in the 70s, particularly the pop music, the rock music, such as lyrics like Pink Floyd or even bands like The Doors, where they were using a lot of poetry and symbolisms and metaphors and all kinds of sophisticated writing techniques, it was understood back then. And nowadays, I think everything has been simplified. It's about, you know, sex, basically. Right. And I think we had more options back then. It's not to say that that didn't exist back then, but we had options. And I don't think that there's as many options nowadays because I think sex sells. And I think that because the record companies have really taken a very hard hit because of the Internet and it's completely transformed the music industry, there's really only three major record labels left at this point. Uh, I think they're just doing what they know works. And they know that sex sells. And I think they're afraid to deviate from that because they just don't want to take a chance on that. You know, they just want to know what they know sells. Um, but the thing with film is that it has so much more of a longevity than just regular pop music. Because pop stars, as great as the life is, they have a life expectancy. You know, they're good for maybe 10 years. And then they get, when they're big, they're bigger, practically bigger than God. Mm -hmm. And... When they're done, they get spit out like an old piece of chewing gum or chewing tobacco, and then, you know, then they have to do desperate antics to try to get their name in the news, like walk out naked or something to get their name or publicity. And so it becomes much more difficult. But when you're doing film, it's just, it's just a, a life expectancy that just keeps going and going and going, because as long as you're writing music for film, as long as you have the right song for the right scene. They like it. You could be 80 years old and you could be... Well, how old is Ennio Morricone? He's, he's up there. Right. And he's, he's, oh my God, he's amazing. Exactly. So 
so the record, the, uh, the, the movie industry is much more forgiving of age. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are, there's a role for every... Well, not for actresses, I think. Yeah, actresses, it, it's much more difficult. It's, um, for some reason, there's always been that, uh, that hardship for women, equal pay and to get the same roles. I think now it's starting to improve a little bit from what it was 20 or 30 years ago, but it still has a long ways to go. And there's just there's a lot of inspirational women out there, and you know unfortunately their voices are not getting heard because there is that sexism that exists still in the industry, and I think a lot of that is um, that war on women and and a, an industry that's primarily dominated by men, and um, you know it's unfair and you you know there is always that that fight. David, I think you should write a song about this because you seem to have some feelings about it. Yeah, well, you know, I've I do have strong feelings with it, and I've studied with a lot of great teachers who were female, and they were some of the most amazing composers, songwriters, musicians that I've ever ever heard or studied with, and um, so you know, yeah, I I, I think that. Uh, there's still a long ways to go as far as being on equal ground with the the, the male and, and female role. Were you in a band in L.A. for a while? Can you talk about that a little bit? I was in a band. Actually, when I was in L.A., I was working for Hans Zimmer and also for Sony Pictures. And at the same time, I was with a band. They were, a, they were called a TGM band. They were a mix between uh, reggae and funk and pop. Reggae, funk, and pop. And what was interesting is we all had our own sort of alter egos, you know, our own personalities, our own characters. They had the, the singer, Al Khalik, he had his own music. Omar, the guitarist, had his own music. Um, I was studying with the bass, uh, I was not studying, I was playing with the bass player at the time from Italy, Alberto de Modena, incredible bass player who had his own music, and then there was my music. So we would do our own music, and then we would have the music that we wrote collectively. And um, we were gigging all around L.A., Burbank, Orange County, uh, and it was a lot of fun. We we did a lot of great shows together. We played a lot of festivals out there and just a lot of amazing outdoor festivals, just, you know, with the sun setting and just bringing in the, bringing in the, the, the uh, you know, just bringing in the energy of the, of the, the sun setting and everything around us. And of course, there's California, the weather was beautiful. There were palm trees everywhere and um, it was an amazing time out there, and I had a lot of great experiences with this band, and uh, yeah, it was it was a fun time, and we wrote a lot of great music. Is any of that music still around on iTunes or anywhere on the internet? No, unfortunately, it's not. We had written this music. I mean, this was back when I was living in L.A., and I was living there shortly after I graduated college. So we're talking about ninety-eight, ninety-nine. And uh, we didn't have the YouTube back then, and we didn't have a lot of the places where we could upload the music. Um, so unfortunately, we, the recordings that we have, I don't have a copy of. But I do remember the songs. So, you know, I could always re-record them and sing them. But I've kind of, you know, that was at one one point in my life, and I've I've written a lot of music since that point. And I've got two albums, The Dream, uh, Dream Chaser and The Troubadour, and um, so I write a lot about a diverse, uh, about just everything that you can think of. Romance, love, sex, uh, social topics, spirituality. 
and I kind of blend them all together because it's all just connected, you know. But if I'm writing about the love or the sex, I kind of like to sophisticate it a little bit from what you might normally hear on the radio, spoken from a person who is a little bit older and more experienced. <laughs> so we're now almost up to when you left L.A. to go to Arizona. What was that like? What was Arizona like? Arizona was beautiful. Now, first of all, the state itself is gorgeous. The desert and um, just the area we grew up. I was living near the, the Scottsdale area, which is near Fountain Hills, uh, Tempe, Mesa. And just the whole scene out there is nice. The, uh, this, the, 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 the saguaro cactuses and the moonlight and the mountains and just the lakes that they have. You know, we've talked about this before. My stepdaughter is in medical school out near Phoenix. It's hot. I'm sure Colin said it's 110 today. It's enormously hot out there. Um, and I didn't know what to expect when I first moved out there. I was thinking, okay, it's hot. They say, it's a dry heat, so don't worry about it. And I look at the thermometer, it's 117 degrees. And that sun was kicking. And I remember I, had a, I was driving a black Lincoln town car, and part of my car melted. Actually, the dashboard almost completely melted. I didn't have a, a sun visor, which at the time I didn't realize. And, of course, a black car in 117 degrees attracts the heat. The whole sealant around the window was fried to a crisp. So I traded that in, and I got myself a red car, and that was a much smarter idea. <laughs> but it is a dry heat, and so, you know, you don't really feel it. But I do stay out of the sun. Even here, I, I don't go near the sun um, just, um, you know, for skin purposes. And what were you doing with your music in Arizona? How were you evolving then? Well, the music scene out in Arizona is very, very... It's uh, it's a little tricky as far as singer-songwriters are concerned. There's not a lot for original music out there. Um, it is sort of, I don't want to say cowtown, but they are still developing. And so... As a musician, a lot of the type of gigs that I was seeing out there primarily were gigs playing in restaurants or, you know, bars for two hours, um, hotels, and, you know, that, which is nice, to, you know, it's for extra money. It doesn't really give you a platform to, to work to, to get your original music out there because you have to do mostly covers. Which is nice, you know, I don't mind sitting down and playing other people's music, and I certainly could play thousands of songs. But of course, you know, the way I, I found myself getting bored playing other people's music and being in cover bands, and that's why people would ask me, why don't you do weddings and, and bar mitzvahs and play things that you can make all that money? I said, you know, because it bores me. I said, I'm bored playing other people's music. I would just sit behind my keyboard, and I would just play it, and you know, and I was just, it was nice, but it was boring. And the only real buzz that I got out of the whole evening was when they let me play one or two of my own pieces, and that's when I just lit up. Mm -hmm. So I realized that I wasn't really looking to be a cover musician, mm -hmm. which is mostly what you will find out in Arizona or, you know, playing your original music, but in a restaurant to people eating a steak dinner. Right. So that wasn't really my idea of that, um, how I wanted my music career to go. So I was teaching out there, which I had a very successful business out there. And um, and then at some point, I, I spoke to a friend of mine, and he convinced me to move back to New York because I was born and raised in New York until I was 18 and went off to college in Boston. 
And I really hadn't been back to New York uh, for about 14 years. I've, I was out of New York for about 14 years between living in California and Arizona. I said, wow, 14 years coming back to New York, I would have never even thought to come back. So I came back and um, I, was, I built up my teaching business out here and um, started, and I was gigging out here. I was playing, I got together with musicians and was playing my own music in various clubs recording my music and re-recording my music and reinventing my music and re-recording them. And I have a couple of producers that I work with. Um, some of the music on my website has sort of this dance, dancey type of feel, techno-ish. Mm -hmm. And I like it. It's very nice. But I was also experimenting with other arrangements, sort of more organic arrangements with real live drums and real live guitar and uh, with a mix, with sort of a hint of that dance feel but something a little bit more organic. So I'm actually working with my producer now on re-recording a lot of these songs to give it that organic feel. I remember when I went to your studio to hear you play an early version of Universal Love, and it was so electric. It was so alive. I don't mean electric like elect, like the genre of music. I mean, it was just so alive and vibrant. And just hearing you play that the first few times, it was really an amazing experience of heightened life. Well, first of all, I would like to thank you for asking me to write that song and for thinking of me. Um, if it weren't for you, I probably wouldn't have even written the song. And um, The Love of My Other Life is, is a fantastic book, and you're a fantastic writer. Thank you, and I know that's not a paid endorsement. <laughs> no, no. And so it was actually an honor. And, um, and that's really what inspired me to write the song. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have, and I'm glad I did. And it was nice to kind of have you come in and listen and just and give me ideas and your ideas were amazing and even the musical ideas that you had were were amazing and I used them. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh so yeah, I uh it was great. It was a great experience. Well, I want to ask you we have like 15 17 minutes left. Um what have you learned? Can you summarize some of the more important points? What have you learned along the way of this really interesting journey as a composer and a musician? The one thing I learned, the most important thing is to be yourself. Um, you know, so many people just follow the trends and they follow the herds. And I think that to a certain point, you have to do that if you want to be relevant because you have to speak to people. But it always reminds me of that one story I heard about, I think it was a sculptor and he sculpted something, a, a work. And, and some people came in and they looked at it and said, it's nice, but I would do this. And so he changed it and he pleased those people. And then another group of people came in and said, but I would do this. And so he changed it and he did that. And then another group of people came in and said, yeah, but I think it needs this. And then he changed it. And then in the end, he looked at what he had created and he said, I don't like it. He said, I'm glad it makes these people happy, but then it doesn't make them happy. So you can't please everybody. So I realized you just have to please yourself. And you, if you're loving what you do, you will automatically attract like-minded people. And um, it's much easier because you don't have to go out and act. You can just go out and be yourself and you can feel great because you're doing what you love. You're expressing it in exactly the way you want to express it. If I'm making a music video, I'm making a video in exactly the way that I would want to see the video. Not what, you know, what is the trend, but the way I would want to see it. 
And um so you don't feel the pressure to be a, I don't know, like Beyonce or be like who are some of these guys? You know, you don't feel that pressure that you need to go out and emulate them in order to do what they're do have achieved their level of financial success. No, I don't feel that pressure. I would like to add though that, you know, although my influences come from, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, I do want to say that I do respect the artists of today. I don't dislike them at all. I think they're excellent at what they do. And I, I, Justin Bieber, uh, any of them, I think he's a great dancer. He's a great performer. I love his music. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Rihanna, Adele. I think they're all fantastic artists, and I think they have great music. I just want to create more options for people who are not into, you know, if they're not experiencing your typical high school breakup relationship or, you know, the whole... Uh, That's what it seems like. It's always stuck at that level of the high school relationship and the loss and yearning or, you know, you've done me wrong or something like that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people can relate to that because we've all been in relationships and people can all relate to that. And it's nice for a certain point, but, you know, it's kind of like eating the same type of food every single day. You know, where are my options? So that's where I come in. And I just want to bring it to a deeper level and just kind of elevate people to realize that, you know, there's, you can be yourself and it's okay to be yourself. And you don't have to worry about pleasing everybody because it's impossible. But you can still love them. You know, even if they don't love you, it doesn't matter. My happiness is not circumstantial. My happiness comes from within. So whether you like me or hate me, it doesn't matter. I love you just the same, and I'm still a very happy person at the end of the day. And I love my music, and I love what I write about. It's very authentic. And I don't feel the pressure to be like them because although, you know, back in the day I did want to be a pop star, I do find that pop stars do have a life expectancy. And although I hate the term has-been, you know, um, it kind of gets thrown around in, in pop music and... Um, with film, I find that there's much more longevity with actors, with musicians in film. Randy Newman is another uh, great writer, and he's still big today writing, and he's probably in his 60s, and he's been doing this since he's young. But, you know, there's a, there's a, sort of this um, um, – that's the word I'm looking for um, – it's just a longevity is the word I'm looking for. It's not the word I'm looking for, but it, it, I think there's a much more longevity. And I think a lot of these people in film have probably outlived generations of five pop stars. And they're still doing it. And they're still on screen. And, it, and, they're, and, they're, and it's, the music is still very powerful. And, and so I think the film is, is a great way. I love film. So I've interviewed a number of different kinds of artists and independent um, self-actualizers and from Lori Bellalove to my husband Sabin Howard and um, Augie Topic a few weeks ago and um, L.V. Lewis, the novelist, last week and they all had a variation of what you're saying, be true to yourself. So are there other important things you've learned on your journey? Yes. The one, Another important thing I've learned is you have to refine your craft. And you have to always constantly keep learning and keep studying and never develop arrogance when you reach a certain level of success 
or when you think you've written the most amazing song in the world, never let it get to your head. You always have to learn and develop yourself and reinvent yourself and refine yourself. And when people want to give you opinions or suggestions, not all of them are bad. So I kind of listen to everything. I sift them out in a strainer, and I just take what I feel is useful. So I'm always constantly learning. Everybody is my teacher. Everybody. It doesn't matter if it's a person I see on a street or a subway. I learn something from everybody, even if it's just one thing that they say in a conversation to somebody else, and I overhear it. I just, everybody is my teacher, and I'm always constantly learning and developing and refining my craft. So how are you challenging yourself this these days in terms of learning and developing as a musician? Well, as far as writing as a musician, I want to start experimenting. What I've been doing is creating a music library of all different rhythms and beats from all around the world. And I like the idea of creating this music and a lot of my music is very contemporary sounding very melodic i'm very strong on melody very important to me but using different rhythmic elements in the music not just maybe a straight four four or one two three four with the with the kick drum on one and three and the snare on two just something a little bit different using i'm, I'm studying brazilian rhythms and african rhythms and just rhythms from all over and just mixing them together i kind of did a little bit with that with pandemonia and um I wrote another song, which is a, a nice little song. It's, uh, it's called Senorita Valentine and Boardwalk Rag. And so I like experimenting with different rhythms and beats, creating music libraries and seeing how I can use those in my music to make it sound, each song I want to sound fresh, not like the other. Some bands you listen to and all their music starts sounding the same after a while. So I want to start making my music where I can use these different rhythms and beats and drummers and 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 just make every song sound different, a different person. I give birth to a completely different child, a different mm-hmm. song, without it all sounding the same. That's cool. I think that's a tall order for any um, any kind of artist. Um, what are some of the major challenges you've faced in your work so far, and what are some of the major rewards? I think some of the, I think actually. I would say 99% of the challenges I face are self-made. Um, everybody has always been very receptive to me, um, open. Um, I think, you know, the, the always there's always that thought or that fear. What if it's not good enough? What if people are, you know, what if people are not going to? And there's always that. It's always like that little frightened little child inside of you that is always scared of, you know, what are people going to think? And always going to, and then that thought kicks in with. You know, I don't care because I love my music. And then the adult kicks in, the wiser me. It's like the child on one shoulder and the adult on the other shoulder. Well, that child is who I was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but it's not who I am today. So that wave of that feeling comes over me like, you know, my initial reaction is to be scared. And that's how I would have felt. But now I have this other part of me, which has developed, which I I love my music and I love how I've evolved, and I'm always evolving and reinventing myself and my music. And uh, I just want to um, add something. I interviewed last week novelist L.V. Lewis, and I had started reading her book 
um, Fifty Shades of Jungle Fever, which was hilarious and smart and wonderful and very, very frisky. And her main character in that has an angel and a bad, a good angel and a bad angel on what on each shoulder. And the good angel, I think, is Triple G, and the bad angel who's always encouraging her to do naughty things is called the Hoochie Mama Fairy. But I thought about that. And then also you're talking about fear and Augie Topic, who is the world Mai Tai kickboxing champion. You and I had talked about him a little bit before the show. He talked about fear too. And I think there's fear anytime you risk yourself. And I think being an artist means constantly risking yourself because if you're not risking yourself, you're not growing. Do you, do you agree with this philosophy? I agree 100%. I think if you did not have fear, you would be arrogant. I think fear, whenever you're exposing yourself as an artist in that innermost personal thing about yourself, which is your art form, which is the thing you connect with most, there's naturally going to be fear. And I was watching videos of interviews with Rod Stewart, and he said that when he was in his career, at this point he'd been well-known, he would still get nervous. He would hide behind the speakers. I mean, he, to this day, many artists will talk about they still get stage fright. Even though they can overcome it, it's a completely normal thing, especially when you're putting your own music out there. It's different when it's your own music because it's just, it's your innermost personal part of yourself and you become very sensitive to to that. And uh, And I think if you didn't have that fear, then there would just, you would not have growth. I think it's the fear that makes you grow and it makes you stronger and makes you get to know yourself better, makes you more comfortable in your own shoes. Um, I think the artist without fear, you know, I, 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 um, first of all, I don't believe them when they say that. Um, I think everybody naturally has a little bit of fear. Uh, I think they just, everybody can overcome it at different levels, you know, but uh, I think fear is good to a point as long as you know how to keep it in check. That's basically what Augie Topic said also. Where do you see your work in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Where do you see it going? I would love to live on the screen on the, on the, in film and as well as acting. Um, I love acting as well. And um, even though I know it's kind of weird because they say, well, when you're writing and acting, it seems like they'd be two different things. Because when you're writing, you're just being completely honest. When you're acting, you're acting. But um, I don't agree with that because I think that when you, you know, no matter what script you looked at, you can you look at, you can always find a place in your life or an experience where you can relate to whatever they're writing about. And so all you have to do is put yourself in sort of. It's like what Sting said. You know, he's got a file cabinet of experiences, so he doesn't need to relive them and recycle. He just, you know, if he needs to write about them, he can always go back into that file cabinet and pull from a, 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 of a. A major, of just a huge selection of experiences in his life without having to relive them. I would love to live on film and radio and live performance. I use, uh, I like to perform live with, uh, I have a very big stage show. I have, um, I bought a stage lights and people dancing and birds flying and I use a projector screen. I've made videos for live performance for my songs. So I actually perform them live to video on stage. And so that's where I would like to live. I'd like to live on radio screen, and live performance. That's cool. That's, that's a great answer. And what have you found to be the best tool to help you along your path of becoming this musician, the evolving musician? What helps me a lot is I reconnect to 
my childhood and that that child in me. Um, I had a great upbringing. I had a wonderful mother and father. Uh, My mom is still alive. My father is not, but it doesn't matter. He lives inside of me. I had the most amazing childhood out on Long Island that any child could hope for. Nothing bad that I could think of, and everything is just basically, um, it's just been great. And um, I just bring myself back to the time where it was all new for me, where it was just, this is what I wanted to be. I was studying, I was going into the city every weekend to study at Manhattan School of Music and going to Berkeley and just traveling around and just when it was new for me, because sometimes when you, when you get older, things can become a little stale if you don't constantly reinvent them. And so whenever that starts to happen, I always reconnect with my childhood and I always reconnect with my inner spirit, who's always child, always childlike. And that's what kind of buzzes me. That's a buzz. And I meditate on that. And uh, it reconnects me to the source, you know, and um, I just, um, I think about if my life was going to end tomorrow, do you feel that you accomplished everything that you want to in life? Or would you feel regret because you didn't feel like you accomplished what you came here for. And that's what drives me as well, which may be a little bit of fear, but like I said, a little fear is good (laughs) as long as you could control it. So that's kind of my motivation, my motivating source right there. Well, we have just a couple minutes left. Um, The hour flew by for me as I knew it would. And so I just, I would like you to first go through and once again, tell our listeners how they can listen to your music and, how where they can find you and contact you, and also then talk about maybe some fun facts that people don't know about you. Okay, is this G-rated? G-rated. G-rated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you can find my music on my website at David Sklar Music. That's D A V I D S K L A R M U S I C dot com. Most of them are my original music. I have a few um, duplicate songs on there, just experimentations of different recordings and arrangements. Um, Some of them are cover songs of songs that are just very personal to me. There are some cover songs that I do love singing uh, that I do perform live on stage as well. Um, And uh, you can also find me on iTunes. I have a song, Don't Know Why, which is on iTunes. You can find me on YouTube, MySpace, Twitter, LinkedIn, Reverb Nation, so I'm just about, I'm on all of the social media sites. Fun quick, fact quick fun, fact. fun fact about myself. Um, let's see. I'm an obsessive runner. I run about 10 miles every day. I just go east side, west side, east side, west side, east side, west side. And I love basketball and soccer. I love soccer. So I'm, I'm, I'm an obsessive runner. I love uh, keeping myself healthy. David, thank you so much. This was an amazing interview. Thank you for being on. I'm really grateful. Thank you, Tracy. I had a great time. So to all my listeners, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And please join us next week at a special time, Thursday at 3, as the Honorable Vice Consul of Italy talks about being a patron of the arts in today's frantic world. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.